when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing the Queen's speech and Boris Johnson's role in the Leave campaign. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent, Henry Manns, our chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rackman, and leader writer, James Blitz. Thank you all for joining. So this week, Her Majesty delivered yet another Queen's speech, and it was pretty thin gruel on offer. Key not to rock the parliamentary boat too much ahead of June's referendum. David Cameron's one big bit of reform that was announced was prisons as his key legislation for the next few months. There was a few interesting bits on driverless cars, British spaceports, and some more powers for the spooks, but nothing earth-shattering. But there was plenty of hints there about what Mr Cameron wants his legacy to be. So George Parker, you've seen one or two Queen's speeches in, in your years as a political editor. Was this a classic? I haven't seen quite as many as the Queen, fortunately. It was a 63rd. I don't think, look, I think, Are you hoping to make that record? Uh, I'm obviously hoping to. I think the thing about Queen's speeches, and what is true is every time a Queen's speech comes along, we over-exaggerate its importance. In fact, they're always described as a ragtag of collection of bills with no coherent theme. They're always deemed to be insignificant or insufficient. And the truth is, a lot of what governments do are nothing to do with legislation. They're to do with executive power. Having said that, I thought it was interesting in the sense that David Cameron clearly was trying to move on beyond the referendum to prove he's still got fuel in the tank for his second term. But the thing that really struck me about the Queen's speech was David Cameron is someone who's always trying to establish his legacy, which is something around compassionate, softer Cameroon conservatism, but always something else getting in the way. So, you know, you go back to his speech in 2005 when he became Tory leader, barely a mention of the economy, no mention at all of Europe. It was all about social care, mobility, softer kind of society. Then the crash came along and it was wiped off the agenda for five years. Now he's trying to do it again. And the European issue is wiping it off the agenda. And who knows whether David Cameron, frankly, is going to be prime minister to implement this programme. He could be out of office in less than a month's time or just over a month's time. It's very interesting going back to this. There is a sense, I think, when the majority, a lot of the Cameron project has gone back to where it was before the coalition, before the crash. We've got a very interesting piece in the FT weekend by Danny Kruger, who was one of the original Cameron outriders back in those halcyon days before the crash and what have you. But the prison reform was a really big part of this and this is very interesting under Michael Gove's purview and could ask what the relations are like between the Justice Department and number 10 at the moment. Well the relations are tense that's for sure but I think to the extent that Michael Gove's prison reforms go very much in the direction David Cameron wants to take the party I think that's fine because they see both Michael Gove and David Cameron this is a chance to unify the party after the EU referendum and frankly as you said at the top there Seb, there's not an awful lot of stuff in there which most people will object to. I mean, there are a few bills which could cause trouble for David Cameron down the line, but all the social mobility, softer stuff is stuff the party can gather around. I think the critics will say, well, hang on a sec, under Chris Grayling, who after all wasn't Justice Secretary very long ago, it was a much tougher and harsher regime on prisons. And if David Cameron really believes in rehabilitation, life chances, helping people 
break the spiral of criminality, then why was he allowing Chris Grayling to do what he was doing? Well, one of the things that prison reform achieves is that it should be a policy to save the government money. If you do it well, if you have fewer people in very expensive prisons, if you can have more efficient prisons on new sites and sell off ones in the centre of London, which would, property developers would love to get hold of. The interesting thing is just in the same week as Michael Gove is, is coming to the forefront with that policy, which is very helpful to David Cameron, Today, he was talking about the NHS and his desire that more money be spent on it, even if we remain in the EU. So there you see sort of tensions, but a much more difficult priority there. If money is involved, then having this softer kind of conservatism becomes a more complex issue. It is interesting because obviously this was about trying to get away from the EU bit, Henry, and look at some more domestic stuff. But even with that, there was this rebel amendment that was tabled this week, which was very interesting. Mm-hmm. It was all to do with TTIP and the NHS. Can you explain what all that was about? And the government seems to have kind of just shrugged its shoulders and just said, oh, we'll let the amendment pass to the uh, Queen's speech. Yeah, and for those listeners who haven't been following, we're about to be governed by a conspiracy of a few men in a room who have come up with TTIP. And both people on the far right and the far left have decided that this is the issue of the day and a terrifying prospect that's going to undermine the NHS. The government had made clear that it wasn't going to any draft trade agreement or investment partnership between the EU and the US was not going to require bits of the NHS to be privatised or outsourced. And yet rebel backbenchers said they were going to table this amendment and they had the vote potentially to derail the Queen's speech, which had been hugely embarrassing. Now, I think you can say lots of things about this. One of the things it suggests to me is that those sort of moderates who want to leave the EU, like Michael Gove, are suddenly having to embrace policies that don't come naturally to them, to be very sceptical of trade deals, for example. One thing that showed to me, George, that if the Queen's speech had been voted down, I think it would have been the first time since 1924, which led obviously to the ejection of Stanley Baldwin, the first national government, a Labour government with Ramsay MacDonald. But what it, it's the very tight parliamentary arithmetic that David Cameron has to work with here, that his majority is still very slender. And for someone to bring down the government, it really doesn't take that much at all. Well, he's got to work well, not bring down the government, uh, uh, defeat the government, I should say. Well, he's got a working majority of 17. And as Henry was saying, that you end up in a situation where people, Conservative MPs, are fighting proxy wars where it may be about the health service or it may be about child refugees or it may be about Sunday trading, but the root cause of lots of this stuff is the antagonism towards David Cameron on Europe. And this amendment wouldn't have brought the government down. It wasn't a vote of confidence. It would have been hugely embarrassing. And in a way, it's still quite embarrassing because David Cameron has now accepted an amendment which basically says a bill should have been put in the Queen's speech to protect National Health Service from this TTIP trade deal. The reason that the rebels are doing it is because they want to put the NHS up in lights in this referendum campaign. They have a sort of fairly nebulous argument about the need to take back control. And the voters are saying, well, what do you mean by that? And they're trying to illustrate this by saying, if we had control, if we didn't give all that money to Brussels, we could spend it on the National Health Service. And through this parliamentary jiggery-pokery, they're trying to put a spotlight on that. Henry, what did you make of Jeremy Corbyn's response? Because obviously Mr Corbyn is... Maybe not the most engaging parliamentary speaker at the best of times, but his response was interesting this year. So it was a response of two halves. And I think people expect Jeremy Corbyn to be rather awful in the House of Commons. And for a few minutes, he surprised them. He made them laugh. He came out. He or his researchers had done some funny digging into one of the MPs to speak before him and uh, came out with a few witty lines about their career in, uh, I think, a local cricket club. He then moved on to policy and it was night and day, really. I mean, we went from a very witty, generous speech that people on all sides of the House could enjoy to one which was really just shouting at the government. MPs and the Conservative MPs got particularly annoyed that he didn't take any of their interjections. 
It was, I'd never seen anything quite like it. I mean, he spoke for over 40 minutes without <laughs> taking a single intervention, which in parliamentary terms is unprecedented. I think I can never remember anyone making a speech of that length without taking a single intervention. You're meant to be having a debate with people, not delivering some speech to the Central Communist Party. I mean, it was terrible. I went out halfway through the his speech to go and recharge my phone. It was uh, so terrible. When I came back, he was still going. <laughs> <laughs> It does highlight, though, George, that Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he, his leadership, he just doesn't want to do these sort of things. Like you, got, I got the sense watching bits of it. Again, I have to confess, I didn't last watching the whole <laughs> thing that he feels like he just wanted to do it, get food as quickly as possible and then get back to campaigning on the doorsteps or talking to the people of Grimsby about job cuts and what have you. Mm. That's far more his style. And for him, the pomp and circumstance of the Queen's speech must be everything he hates. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he doesn't play the game. And in a way, that's obviously part of his appeal. And as Henry said, he obviously was given some very amusing notes to read out by some aides. But, you know, there are people in his office who could tell him, Jeremy, you don't need to speak for 40 minutes. You'll lose the House's attention. And he doesn't really care, to be honest. And... One of the interesting things in a, in a long New Yorker piece published this week was he let slip that everyone in his office, he said everybody, uh, thought he should spend longer preparing for PMQ's Prime Minister's questions than he did. And so and he didn't say why he disagreed with them. But he you can just about imagine inside his office people who understand how Jeremy Corbyn's being seen by the public, being seen on television, saying that this isn't working, let's do it differently, and just not making any headway. And um, he doesn't care. Yeah. It's totally true, because if you think of the amount of time I think David Cameron spends over the whole morning before, I think it was Ian Duncan Smith who used to spend a day and a half preparing for PMQ's, you know, Leaders of the office take it really seriously because it was seen as their time to go out there, score some points and show leadership. But he's obviously just not bothered about that at all. You know, we look at this and criticise him frequently at PMQs, but does he actually care? He probably doesn't. I don't think he does. I mean, I don't think many of his supporters spend their time watching debates on the Queen's speech. They are much keener to see him attending rallies to save a local hospital or a childcare centre. And so I don't think he cares too much about it. I mean, there are some people who think he doesn't care so much to the extent that maybe next year or whenever it is, he might try and hand over the reins of the party to someone who will enjoy it more. And obviously the speculation in the Labour Party is that John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, probably even more hard left than Jeremy Corbyn is waiting in the wings to take over. And you have to look at the way that John McDonnell deports himself. He's trying to look much more statesmanlike, very softly spoken, almost like your friend. Quite successfully, local I think. Manager, and quite effective. He's a far more effective parliamentary and media performer than Jeremy Corbyn. Very much so. I think it's a, you can still get eight to one odds, by the way, on John McDonnell being the next Labour leader. So there's a very yeah. good top FT politics bookmakers <laughs> bet there for you. Finally, Henry, so we've seen this agenda that's been put out here now. There's really not going to be that much happening in Parliament for essentially till the autumn now because the government shuts down on the 29th of May, if I'm right, which is when Perda begins. We've then got the EU referendum and then who knows what could happen after that. So when's the next bout of real action going to be, do you think? Things could happen. I was speaking to a, a senior MP this week who thought that the vote on the Trident successor programme, that could happen in July if you need something to bring the Conservative Party together. But most people think that will probably be in the autumn. But there, things can move very quickly. It really depends in what state the party is in, what opportunities they see. But that potential for a small group of rebels to really annoy the government and prevent anything controversial from being done, again, we've seen it this week. And whatever mm. happens after June the 23rd, it's not going to be boring. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> And now on to Boris Johnson. The EU referendum campaign has trundled along this week and has been dominated once again by the former mayor of London and now the Tory MP for South Uxbridge, I believe. And from claiming that the EU was continuing Hitler's vision for a united Europe 
To explain that large bunches of bananas are illegal, the campaign has been everything Boris watchers could have hoped for. Absurd, full of slight untruths and quite funny. But is he actually helping the Brexit cause and doing his own image any good? To James Blitz at the beginning, there was this big question about whether Boris was going to be an in or an outer. And many still suspect, including David Cameron, as we learned this week, that Boris was actually not a Brexiter in his heart. Yes, that has always been the case because he said at the time when he came out for Brexit that he had been agonised about it a great deal. Now that he's done that, he's clearly thrown a great deal of passion into the campaign. But I don't think at any moment now since the campaign got going that he's had a truly winning moment, if you like. I think if you look at the campaign, the government has come up with some really strong documentation, the Treasury report, the Bank of England report. There's been all these international analyses of the impact on the economy of Brexit. And that's really what's dominated things. And at no time has Boris or indeed any of his allies, produced a moment that I think really balanced that. Because what's interesting, Gideon, is if you look at this campaign, I think the things that Boris will be remembered for so far, one is slightly racist comment about Barack Obama being the part Kenyan president, two was comparing the EU to Hitler, and the third one, which we saw this week, is a poem about the Turkish president. Um, you know, And this all sounds like sort of good japes and laughs that people like, but is this the making of a man who's going to be prime minister? Well... We'll see. I mean, I think you're right that among people like us, people are saying, well, you know, what's he up to? This isn't serious. How could anyone imagine him being prime minister and so on? And maybe that will be the public reaction. But I think you have to be a bit careful because if you talk to, say, Tory MPs who've campaigned with Boris in the last election, they said he was about the only politician who people would run across the road to see. He's got charisma. And if you look at the American election, Donald Trump has done many, many worse things than the kind of thing that Boris Johnson has said. Every time along the line, our American equivalents, the pundits would say, oh, well, it's clearly over. He can't say that and get away with it. Didn't appear to matter. If anything, it helped him. So, yeah, in conventional political terms, he's made a series of mistakes. I don't know whether they actually are mistakes in reality. Because going back to that Trump comparison, Donald Trump has managed to offend an awful lot of people. And I think Boris, with this poetry competition he's won maybe you can tell us a bit about that that he managed to offend well probably the turkish prime minister and create some sort of an international incident you're in fact egging me on aren't you to read the poem so okay i'll do it so this was in a spectator poetry prize competition to write an offensive poem about erdogan because as you probably know he is pursuing a german journalist to the courts for having said something offensive about him so boris was asked would he enter and he apparently made this up on the spot it goes there was a young fellow from Ankara who was a terrific wankerer till he sowed his wild oats with the help of a goat, but he didn't even stop to thank her. So, uh, yeah. It's impressive. <laughs> Im- yeah, impressively creative. But you see, the thing is, even us, you know, and we're pretty serious types, I can see you're smiling. And I think that, you know, insulting the Prime Minister of Turkey is not either not known in Britain or if he is not very popular, isn't going to do him any harm. But it's not just people from the outside like us, James, is it? That even inside the Conservative Party, there's some scepticism about Boris. So we saw Michael Heseltine, the former Deputy Prime Minister, very much a wet Tory, attacking Boris for his outrageous comments, I think he described them, about Hitler and saying the man is not fit to be Prime Minister here. But the fact is, his side of the party, the Remain side of the party, don't have anyone like Boris. You know, Boris goes to Stafford High Street and people come running after him and chasing him for selfies. There's no one on the Remain camera. They're not doing that for Alan Johnson or Theresa May, are they? And that is a problem for Remainers. My feeling on this is that in British politics, 
I think it's always important to be a charismatic figure. If you can, if you want to be a leader, you've got to have some charisma. That's absolutely essential. And Boris has clearly got it. But you have also got to balance that with an authority that people also want to see in a prime minister. I've always, I think people want their prime minister to be someone that they can have a drink with in the pub. That's always been an advantage. John Major had that, very down-to-earth. Margaret Thatcher was a charismatic figure. Tony Blair, at his height, was a very, very funny speaker. I still go back to in the late period of Blair, his appearance on the Michael Parkinson show just before he left office in 2007. He had everybody out of the palm of his hand, very funny. But that's got to be mixed with authority. In my view, Boris Johnson has got loads of the first. What Heseltine and others are saying is he just doesn't have the second. And I think that when he came up with the Hitler comment, because that's important, I think there's a golden rule in politics is try and keep Hitler out of it if you possibly can. You saw Ken Livingston come a total cropper on it. Hitler gets you nowhere. Keep him out. <laughs> and the fact that Boris made that mistake shows a kind of gaucheness and a lack of seriousness, which I do think is going to be a problem for him in the long run. Yeah, possibly. I mean, unless he can rewrite the rules of politics, I think James is completely right if the rules up until now still obtain with Boris. I mean, can I unwisely attempt some sort of defence of that Hitler comment? Because in fact, if you look, if you followed Eurosceptic debates for the last 20 years, which unfortunately I have, it's long been an argument amongst them that far from being this great liberal progressive idea of the European Union, that the idea of the, there's something inherently sinister about the idea of European unity. And this has been a sort of trope of Eurosceptic thought for 20 years. And Boris put it in the context of Napoleon, Hitler, blah, blah, blah. Now, he's a grown up politician. He should know better. He should know that, as James says, if you use the word Hitler, nobody's going to pay any attention to the rest of what you're saying. But actually, hidden beneath there, there is a kind of semi respectable intellectual argument. And what was interesting, I went to the premiere of Brexit, the movie, which we talked about last week on this podcast, and there's a clip from Nigel Farage in there who uses the line, who brings Stalin into it while we're going through all the dictates of the past. And he said, Stalin used to kill his enemies. Uh, the EU just smothers them to death with money. And this is this whole idea that Eurosceptics have, that the EU buys people off through NGOs, governments, grants and what have you. So there is a thread there, but I totally agree with you. That as soon as you bring Hitler into it, you just silence any other debate and it just becomes in this horrific and that sort of thing, as we discussed about Ken Livingstone. Yeah, that's right. I think that was a mistake. I mean, if one throws things forward, I think the Conservative Party, assuming we remain, the question will then be, has Boris really burnished his credentials in this? And is he going to appeal to the sort of Eurosceptic faction in the Conservative Party generally? Because, of course, the next leader has to be elected not just by the MPs, but also by the party rank and file. And that's key. And he's still incredibly popular with the rank and file. But I also think there will be a feeling as time goes on that the Conservatives need something very different, a move away from the Etonian privileged look, something which is moved us on from this phase of politics. And that, I think, is what's going to play against him. I don't think he... I don't think he offers something new. That's what I think is worrying It's for interesting to argue against that. I can totally take the point. I mean, I think if he were anyone other than him, another old Etonian would be almost unthinkable. But because he's such a sort of powerful personality, I think he can probably bust through that. But I think that one of the things that is interesting will be that for the first time in this campaign, I've seen people really talking about Boris with detestation. I mean, I think up until now, he's so sort of genuinely funny. He's quite a winning personality. Even people on the other side of the divide kind of had a soft spot for him. 
But I think a lot of people feel what he's done is extremely unscrupulous. It's all about his career. And obviously, referendum campaigns heighten emotions. So people on the other side really dislike him and despise him for what he's doing. Yes. One thing that I've heard recently is about where Boris is going to go if we have a Remain vote, David Cameron still Prime Minister, and there's a lot of thought that he will have a reshuffle before the summer recess to bring some Eurosceptics. So Dr Liam Fox, who was formerly Defence Secretary, is very much tipped to make some kind of comeback. Michael Gove might get an elevation to Deputy Prime Minister. And the two key departments that are being talked about for Boris, one is health, and one is education. Now, health would be very much a poison chalice, I think, because... It's still recovering from the junior doctors. There's huge problems with the NHS and funding. Education, I think, would be a very good move for Boris because it's something he passionately cares about. He's a very learned man. But would it be big enough to contain that ego, which we've seen a lot of, and that's what we've talked about, you know, putting him in the Department of Education, which, you know, Michael Gove was very much the making of him. But for Boris, would that really contain him and would it allow him mm. to develop his leadership I ambitions? I mean, being booed at teachers' conferences and all of that. I don't think he'd want education. But I think health, as you say, is huge poison chalice. A very clever move by Cameron if he really wants to sort of mess Boris up. Or I would think Home Secretary is another famous poison chalice. Maybe I'll give him that. The other one as well, which I think would be the really good way if Cameron feels he can slap Boris down, would be local government. Because he can say, well, you're you know Britain's most popular local politician. You've been mayor of London. You know all about how to run local government. You should do this for the whole country which is it's obviously a big department, but in the scale of Whitehall things, it's probably smaller than Boris's position deserves because he is, I believe, the second or the top most known politician in the country. But do you think he'll move Osborne? Well, this is the key question we'll have to wait and see. I think there's certainly a sense among Team Osborne that a change might not be a bad thing. The key thing would be the Foreign Office because the argument is in regards to a Remain or a Leave vote, the Foreign Office will become a very important thing. So if it's a Leave vote and Britain leaves the EU, then the Foreign Office becomes hugely important again because it is Britain's contact with the outside world. If it's a Remain vote, we've got all these EU questions going on, the um, potential next treaty change, ISIS, Syria, Libya, the list goes on. So for Osborne to put himself right in the centre of that might allow him to rehabilitate his image from being away from broken budget and the Treasury and all the rest of it. But there's a question of who Cameron would trust to put in the Treasury. So I don't know who... Oh, well, on that particular point, who knows? I mean, Philip Hammond has always had a a kind of reputation as being that kind of... a person who would be able to manage that well... It's hard to know. I mean, as far as Boris is concerned, I don't. I mean, health and education are two portfolios that do not need a large entertaining figure. They are. Heavy, I think that's why he's chosen. Yeah, them. but I mean that they are heavy duty, complicated. You've had the worst relationships that this government has had with any set of public sector employees in both of those. In health, you've just come through an extremely difficult junior doctor strike, probably the worst piece of industrial action we've seen in Britain since the miners' strike education appalling with teachers and and much of the reform has been done the truth is that those two departments need more funding nothing is going to substantially change the outlook so in that sense perhaps he could put him there as a kind of poison chalice i think if it is remain he's not going to get a top tier job i think there will be a cameron will want to bring the party together but it will be at the second tier it'll be something like local government possibly And finally, obviously, I think this shows that everyone loves talking about Boris, that we've just in a conversation about this. He's clearly someone who's very interesting. But last question, gentlemen, for today. How do you feel the campaign's going and what do you think is going to happen? Gideon? I, uh, you know, fluctuate on a very unsophisticated basis. I look at the polls. So, uh, you know, about a month ago, I was pretty confident would stay in. Then I had a trough of despond because I want us to stay in. Whether I think there were five out of seven polls, albeit some of them online, showing leave. But just recently, the last couple of days, the polls 
seem to have changed again, and possibly in a decisive way. You've had some polls showing up to 13 points ahead for Remain. Now, maybe that means that some of this heavy-duty establishment hammering, all the economic stuff is really getting through and we've reached a turning point, but it's too soon to say that. It'll have to have a persistent trend for two or three weeks. And James? I agree with that. I think it's going more towards Remain. I think Remain has won the economic argument. I don't see much changing now. If the Leave people wanted to put up to puncture the argument about economic stability, they needed to do it by now. They haven't done it. The question in the final five weeks is what is going to happen on the migration argument. Is the public mistrust with all these figures on migration and their concern going to be something that can be exploited by the outside? Or is the Remain side going to do something which they haven't done up till now, which is to deconstruct the arguments over migration seriously and make the positive economic case for allowing free movement of people, which they have not yet done? That, for me, is the central question. If I was in Remain side shoes, I'd get on with that because it's still the one thing that could make the outcome very close. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FD Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.